Well, good morning, everybody. How are you? Everybody's doing okay? We're going to jump into this, and I hope that you guys can uh, uh, be edified by this, that you can grow, and that uh, this truly is helpful to this conversation. In the first two weeks of this series, Paul, Women, and Wives, we covered, um, we've covered significant ground, right? We've, we've talked about a whole lot of, uh, of ideas and things. During week one, we identified a critical argument dividing the church, that is, the role of women in ministry. Uh, some of you didn't know that that was an argument, but it absolutely is, and it's quite a contentious one as well. We've also de- identified the two major players in this discussion. That would be the complementarians and the egalitarians. Um, we listed some of their arguments, or we listened to and listed some of their arguments, um, but as I pointed out, we also heard a lot of their non-argument arguments, right? Things that, things that really aren't uh, viable or legitimate to make a case for a position. Last week, we looked at the terms minister and ministry, uh, and we found that they mean, if we're just going to look at those words, they mean to serve or to be a servant. And these definitions along with the biblical texts that we worked through, um, have led us to the conclusion that women are very much welcome in ministry. Not only that, but I think, I think anecdotally, I think when we observe life, we understand that women have always ministered and presently minister in many, many ways. Amen? This is just a fact of our lives. This doesn't mean, that truth, doesn't mean that we've arrived at a specific ministry role within the examination of this that both men and women play a part of. But we are moving in that direction. I know some of you are like, that's the whole point of the series, Nathan. We just get on with it. And I'm going to tell you, no. Be patient and ride this ride with me. It's really important. Lastly, I stress that the debate is not about value, uh, not about the value of men and women, or at least it shouldn't be. The discussion instead is hinging all uh, is hinging on function. It is all about this idea of our function within the body of Christ. With this point in mind, I want to talk to you today about an issue that has a direct impact on our God-given function. So if it's all about function, I want to talk to you about an issue that is focused on our God-given function. And I'm referring to a thing that is called the Imago Dei. Can you say that with me? Imago Dei. It's just Latin for the image of God. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, the doctrine of man made in the image of God is one of the basic doctrines of the Bible and one of the most elevating, enlarging, magnanimous fancy word that simply means generous and glorious doctrines. So just a powerful idea. So, so why does the image we bear matter with this, within this particular discussion? This may seem far-fetched to you, but the Imago Dei or the image of God, the image that we bear, it actually undergirds all gender issues. And if you have been awake for the past 10 years, you'll realize that we are having a crisis with regard to gender issues. And I'm telling you, again, this is why it may seem far-fetched, if we can understand the Imago Dei, if we can understand the image uh, we were created in, we will get to the bottom of gender issues. It's also important because if we don't start with a proper foundation, 
I take a little bit of a rabbit trail here, but if we don't start with a proper foundation uh, in any given argument, the conclusions that we assert, the conclusions that we come to uh, are often quite skewed, okay? If you don't begin with the right argument, the conclusion comes, uh, goes completely off the rails. So let me give you an example from American culture. Everybody here familiar with the Second Amendment? Okay. I mean, we live in rural America. If you're not familiar with the Second Amendment, I don't know what, you moved here from Seattle, I don't know what's happening. Anyway, so, right, so you're familiar with the Second Amendment. This, this amendment is the right, oh, like there's somebody in Seattle here that you guys are worried about. Anyway, so the right, the right to keep and bear arms, which is the Second Amendment. But are you aware of the reason for this right? Because if you're not aware of the reason for the right, the argument goes completely off the rails, Right? Listen, if the reason for this right was simply to hunt game, if the reason for this right was simply to protect from a bad guy breaking into your house, listen to me clearly, I would completely understand an argument that talks and calls for uh, gun control measures, right? I mean, think about that. If you're shooting a deer, what do you need a really high-powered rifle for? However, here's the problem. It's not the daggone argument, right? And as long as people keep things based on a wrong argument, they get everybody confused. And everybody's wondering what in the world we're talking about. The argument is actually about protection against what? A government. Until we talk about F-16 control and tank control, we haven't gone far enough. Listen to the army guy. I love this, right? <laughs> this, makes, this makes me happy. Military's like, amen. Anyway, <laughs> right? But, but this is the point. If you, listen, I, I don't want, I don't really care what you believe about the Second Amendment. It's actually not the point. My point is this. If you don't know the argument, you're arguing wrong things. You're, you're, you're fighting over wrong stuff, Right? Half this world thinks we're arguing about one thing and we're actually way over here. And so this issue is the same when it comes to women in ministry. We're not arguing the right foundation. And I'm telling you today, out of all the three weeks that we've gone, today, to me, is the most important. We have to get the foundation of the Imago Dei down. We have to understand what it means to be made in the image of God. When we do that, we can finally start talking about women in ministry. We can finally start talking about what roles are applicable or whatever, right? If we continue to debate only the specific passages in this, in this concept, uh, or we zero in on passages with which we already agree, right? Confirmation bias or something like that. Instead of looking at the whole of God's word and the context that's provided, we will never arrive at a meaningful answer in this discussion. We won't. We're just going to still have John MacArthur fighting with N.T. Wright. That's just what's going to take place, right? But, but that's because we're missing the point. And so the truth is we just, uh, we're just going to keep talking past each other like we do in politics. So we've got to get to the root of the issue. So what is the Imago Dei besides a fancy Latin way of saying the image of God? To answer this, I think we have to ask uh, a bit more, uh, a bit of a more nuanced question. This is the question that I would like you to mull around in your head. What does it mean to bear the image of God? Everybody in this room knows what the word image means. We know what it means to bear something, but, but we might not understand what it means to bear the image 
of God, right? Or another way to ask the question would be, what does it mean for you and I to be made in this specific image? The first step in finding this answer is to understand that only humans, only humans, and that is all humans, say this with me, both male and female, both male and female, all humans, both male and female, are said to be created in the image of God. Here's what Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27 says. Then God said, let us make man in or as our image. That word there is Adam. It's mankind, okay? And you'll see why this is important in just a second. According to our likeness. And then it goes on in verse 27 and says, God created Man, Adam, in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Who's made in the image of God, church? Male and female, we are, absolutely. In Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we read this. This is the book of the generations of... But what did I just say Adam means? Mankind. Let me render this the right way. This is how you should read Genesis 5, 2, 1 and 2. This is the book of the generations of mankind. In the day when God created mankind, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and he blessed them and named them Adam. He named them mankind. Adam, we just get all kinds of confused because we keep thinking a proper name. We keep thinking the guy, but this is mankind. And so God named them man or Adam in the day when they were created. God has created all of us in his image. And finally, in Genesis 9, 6, we see justice uh, and why justice or, and the reason for justice when it comes to taking this uh, particular image or murdering somebody. Whosoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? For in the image of God he was made. Why is it so important to protect uh, people? Why is it so important not to go slaughtering people? Because they are what? They're image bearers. Each and every person. So it's clear that both men and women are made in the Imago Dei. It's also clear that it's very important uh, to bear this image. So there's a, there's a whole level of justice just for this particular thing. Now, just a brief side here. Um, it talks about murdering here, but Jesus changes this in the New Testament, or he adds to it in the New Testament. He says, you're not supposed to murder. He says, but I'm telling you now, you shouldn't even hate your brother in your heart, or you've already murdered him. Isn't that true what it says? So what is so important about this fact that we would hate our brother? What are we hating? The Imago Dei. We are hating the image of God. By the way, if you hate the image of God, or if you hated or, bla or uh, tarnished the image of a deity, it was called blasphemy. <laughs> this is the problem of hating one another or murdering one another. As we search for the answer, we encounter uh, to this question, what is the Imago Dei? We, we come to many propositions or many assertions. The first is that the image of God refers to our um, literal image. In other words, some people think that humans actually look like God. Okay, There's a lot of problems with this, though. Proponents of this idea will say things like, well, doesn't the Bible describe God as having human attributes? Right? He has a mighty right hand or, or something like this. Yeah, the Bible also tells us that we are to take refuge in the shadow of his wings. 
So if we're going to do that, we've got to do it all. See, what happens here is it's a description that utilizes a thing called anthropomorphic language. There's a fun word for you. I sit down at the table and I talk to my girls about these things. And I don't dumb anything down because I, I want to raise them up. And so I ask them to pronounce these words. And it's fascinating because Becca can say anthropomorphic, right? She's the smallest of them all. She's got it down, right? So anthropomorphic language, what is that? It's simply, it's simply a rhetorical tool that's employed to help finite creatures. Who here's a finite creature? Everybody, right? It's, it's there to make finite creatures comprehend what is otherwise uh, impossible to understand. God is so much higher than we are, so much bigger than we are, so much better than we are. And so we have to do something that says, ah, he's kind of like, or heaven is kind of like, or this is kind of like. This language is all over the Bible. At the end of the day, the idea that humans share the literal image of God falls extremely short. John chapter 4 verse 24 uh, tells us that in this sense, in the physical sense, um, God is wholly other than us. Here's what John 4 24 says. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The Bible does not say God has flesh, okay? Now, in defending this idea, some will bring up the incarnation, that is, Jesus coming in the form of a man. And though the incarnation plays a vital role in the discussion, and it does indeed demonstrate that God can take our form, the form in which he created us, it doesn't prove in any way that uh, we are actually in the image of God that way. There's just no proof for this idea. So, let's just start with argument one. We are not physically in the image of God, okay? Now, some of you go, who thinks that anyway? Every painter in the Renaissance, right? Everybody painted this old man in the sky with a big white beard because he's just a human. That's not the way it works. It's just, this is a long-held belief. And it's, it's also a key Mormon belief, if you didn't know that. The next idea is called the substantive view. This view says that as humans, uh, we resemble God spiritually or psychologically. This often includes, it's not limited to these, but it often includes rationality, creativity, and um, our ability to understand morality, right? The, the, the ability to distinguish right from wrong. But again, this falls short. This is not what it means to be made in the image of God. Remember, whatever makes us image bearers must be unique to us as human beings if, in fact, we are the only image bearers. Okay? That's my particular view. There's a lot of arguments there and, and uh, many times arguments from silence trying to prove this idea. But the scripture does say we were made in the image of God. If we are in the image of God and we're the only creatures made in the image of God, then whatever that image is has to be unique to us. Otherwise, other things have it, right? Do you, do you understand my logic here? So, let's take rationality first. Rationality simply means to be endowed with the capacity to reason. Can you all reason? Are people in today's world lacking reason? <laughs> okay, don't answer the question. Okay, guess what? Animals reason too, don't they? Yep, they reason all the time. Uh, we have documented evidence that many species, rats, birds, dolphins, uh, just to name a few, all solve problems. And what's really cool is they get better at solving these problems the more they work on the problem. 
Okay, so a rat in a maze or something like this, right? Closely related to rationality would be that of creativity, but here's where we have to be careful because we often put creativity only in one category, and that is painting pictures and making music, right? That's what we think of when it comes to creativity. But that's not all that creativity is. We often would say something like, uh, that person is creative in the way they solved a problem, right? They were a creative problem solver. This gives help, hope to all you left brain people out there, uh, right? So don't tell yourself you're not creative. You're just creative in a different way, okay? So being rational and being creative are intimately connected, and we've seen these things in the animal kingdom. So not unique to us, okay? So what about this thing with morality, discerning right from wrong? Well, the first hurdle actually comes from the garden, right? The first, the first hurdle comes from Genesis chapter 1 and what we understand in the garden. Uh, remember the tree from which we were not supposed to eat? What was it? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, there's tons of implications here. The first implication is evil must pre-exist in order to have knowledge of it, right? So evil must pre-exist. Second implication is we didn't know it. And if we didn't know it, then my argument is we actually weren't made to process morality. Now, this is a very controversial idea, but it doesn't appear that we were created to do this. We had to trust God. We were supposed to walk by faith when it came to morality. But what did we do? We said, we got it. How's that worked out for us? It's not been a really good thing. So if we were not created to process morality, the argument actually is out the window. But let's just assume we were. The second hurdle for this view has to do with angels and demons. Do angels know good from evil, church? Do demons know right from wrong? They absolutely do. They had to understand something or they wouldn't have been able to rebel against God. And at the core of the debate of morality, this is what we're dealing with. What is of God and what is not. Therefore, what is good and what is not or what is evil, right? Missing the mark. And so it's true that if we're the only creatures who possess this imaging gift, morality is not what makes us the bearers of God's image. Now you're going... Okay, Nathan, that's great. So what the heck is it? Because I'm tired of listening to you already. Okay, listen, there, it's a big, big deal what this image is. In Genesis 1, 26, God is said to have made, and the word is asah, man in his image. Can you say that word with me? Asah, okay? God is said to have made man in his image. In Genesis 1, 27, which is the very next verse, it says that God created or the word bara, man, in his own image. Say that one with me. Bara. So now we have two words, asa and bara. The word asa speaks to formation. And sometimes, albeit rare, uh, it talks about formation without pre-existing materials. So God said, let there be light. Boom, there's light. That's pretty awesome, right? And then there's dust, and he makes us out of it. Okay, so, so there, is the word, uh, there is the word for creating things out of material things. That's the word asa. The word bera, though, uh, it's a bit ambiguous. It can speak of election or a declaration of function. 
a declaration of function. What we're about to see is that the image of God is all about the function you have within this world. That is what the image is. And so based on what we see following this text, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, as well as how the curse affected life, the image of God is concerned with function and with our function in the world because that's the thing, again, that's affected by the curse. Look at Genesis 1, 26 and 28 in its fullness. Right after God says he made us in his image, what does it say? Then God said, let us make man in or as our image according to our likeness and let them rule. And let them rule. There's a function immediately after this image-bearing quality. So he's made us in an image, and he's called us to a function. We're to rule, but over what? Over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Okay, that seems fair enough. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, here's the image, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule. That's what our image-bearing nature is actually about. Now listen, what are we supposed to rule again? I said it the first time, i got to stress it again. Over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So I'm not merely talking about reproduction here, right? That is be fruitful and multiply, that's there too. All creation does that. Well, I thought it was unique to us, Nathan. It is. What I'm talking about is a reproduction of kings And priests meant to project God's image, that's us, into the world, that's a function, and to rule and reign over all of creation. That again is our function. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. This um, is what the creation account establishes, and it's also what the fall cursed. Okay? So watch watch what happens in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16 through 19. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in in your function, in a function at least, right? In childbirth, in pain, you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband. The very thing he said he was going to do and give them and call them to is now cursed because we rebelled against God, okay? Really important stuff. But look at this. It says, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. What were we supposed to rule over? The fish of the sea, the birds of the air, every creeping thing that creeps, right? It's kind of creepy. But anyway, so we're supposed to, right, rule over that. That's why killing spiders is okay, right? We rule over them. You die. That's it. Justice, okay? This is really important, okay? So he goes on. He says, then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, time out, really understand something, men. I want every man's eyes on me right now, please. Everyone, Lonnie's got it. Jim over there. Ah, there we go. Eye contact. Good. Listen to me. Listen to me. Because you listen to the voice of your wife, this is in contrast to listening to the voice of God. It is not saying listening to your wife is a bad idea. 
you probably need to listen to her more. I want every man in this room to say amen. No, Jeff Currington didn't say amen. Maybe you did through that beard, but I didn't see it, okay? So anyway, so amen, right? So listen to this. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it, cursed is the, your function, Cursed is the ground. That's what you're supposed to do. Rule and reign. Subdue the world. Now that's going to be hard for you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. And it's not just because the oven's hot, right? Till you return to the ground because from it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. You remember what the first conflict was post-fall, post-garden? You remember what the first conflict was after the expulsion from Eden? It's Cain destroying what? The image of God. It's the very problem, right? Cain murders his brother. He murders, murders Abel. What was Abel doing? His function. He was doing it properly, though. And that created bitterness and envy and jealousy in his brother's heart. Again, the creation account establishes this functional view of the Imago Dei. And the fall curses this functional view. It makes it harder. So what does all of this have to do with women in ministry? The answer in short is absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. With a proper view of the Imago Dei, the ontological idea, the essence of men and women functioning as the image of God, we will find peace in this argument. But if we don't think this far back, if we don't go to this point in the argument, we're arguing about gun control thinking it's about hunting. Do you understand what I'm saying? right? We're missing the stinking point. So we will find peace in this debate. Understanding that this image is affected by the fall and can be redeemed and is redeemed and it's redeemed in one man, Jesus Christ, who is who? The second Adam. We're going to get it. We're going to connect all these pieces. God creates man and woman as a cohesive unit. Did you know that? Turn to your husband or your wife and say, we're a cohesive unit. This is what I do to my daughters all the time, right? A cohesive, whatever, dad. Okay, you're a cohesive unit, right? What that means is that we are supposed to, uh, here's another fancy word for you, synergistically portray God's image in the world. We're supposed to be together on this, amen? What's synergy? Working together. Not fighting with one another. We're supposed to work together. But because of the fall, what happened? It became a fractured unit. We, we are supposed to be one. Did you notice the union of marriage was given before the fall? And the two shall become one flesh. This happens before the fall. Okay? So, so we were supposed to be this synergistic unit. Now we're fractured and we're vying And here's why, because of Genesis 3.16, we're vying for supremacy and power. 
Here's what Genesis 3.16 says. To the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Your function is going to be affected, or one of your functions is going to be affected. But here's the biggest effect towards our function. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. That term, yet your desire will be for your husband, is translated, it means, literally, you will try to rule him, but now you have a ruler. Who were we supposed to rule, church? Fish. <laughs> All the fishes, fishermen are like, this is awesome, right? Jerry Kluss, loving this, I guess, from home. Where's Jerry at? Bettina, where's Jerry at? He's fishing. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Jerry Kluss, I'm coming for you, bud. I'm coming for you. Okay, so that was awesome, right? So it says, your desire will be for your husband. Translated, you want to desire, you want to rule him, but he will be your head. He will rule over you. How do I know that that's the translation? Because just like anything, the Bible is filled with phrases that mean things to its original authors. And in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, we see the exact same phrase. In Genesis 4, 7, it actually says that sin is, sin's desire is for you. Do you think that that means sin has googly eyes towards you and I? It doesn't mean that. It means that sin wants to rule you, but what do you have to do? But you must master it. So Guess what? Jewish people had phrases that mean, mean things just like we do, right? Cash on the barrel and things like this, right? So you are now in a fractured union because of the fall. The consequence of the fall is the source of the divide between the sexes, and the consequences of the fall are the sources of the division inside the church. And if we don't go back to this foundation for the argument, we're just going to talk past each other. We're just going to miss the daggone point. So one side is actually trying to push down. This is men, generally, okay? Now listen, what I'm about to share with you are the most frustratingly annoying things that I have had to look for in this study because the way women have been viewed historically, the way men have pushed them down historically is utterly infuriating. Listen to these. You'll probably, you'll probably laugh, gasp, I don't know what you'll do. In rabbinic literature, Eve was viewed as the one who brought death to the world. Bum, 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 right? Which is why they made women march in front of funeral beers as they went through this processional. Nice, shameful reminder of all things that you did, Eve, right? Women were also said, I know this might be graphic to some, women were also said to menstruate because it was Eve who shed Adam's blood. Okay, so where, where is this in the Bible? Oh, I forgot. It's not there, right? Um, women were to candle, uh, to kindle the Sabbath lights. So every Sabbath they have these candles that they light. They were to kindle the Sabbath lights because, quote, rabbinic literature, quote, Eve was responsible for extinguishing Adam's soul. Melodramatic much? <laughs> right? so what is this? Much later, rabbis even claimed that Eve was created so that Adam would fall. Women, you have like some encouraging words spoken over you. What is this stuff about? Views like this, uh, the views that push women down, right, continued all the way up and through the Reformation. In his devotion on the doctrine of creation... A man I have no 
love for, quite honestly. John Calvin commented on, the, on Genesis 2.18. He said this, Although women are equal to men as created in the image of God, they are, quote, to a lesser degree. I don't know where you're finding that, Johnny boy, but it's not in the Bible. So in a sermon on Job, Calvin goes on and he says, Men are preferred to females in the human race. He went on to say, We know that God constituted men as the head and gave him a dignity and a preeminence above that of the woman. It is true that the image of God is imprinted on all, but still, woman is inferior to man. Good old John Calvin. He misunderstands a lot of things, just in case you were wondering. While one side is trying to push down, don't get too high and mighty, women. <laughs> the other side is just trying to overtake. Linda Belleville, in, uh, she's an egalitarian. She admits in two views on women in ministry that the feminist solution to male domination is a rewriting of history that inverts the hierarchy. Let's invert the hierarchy. But she goes on to say, rather than equalize the power. But guess what? Even Linda Belleville, who's trying hard to find balance in this, very smart woman, brilliant, unbelievable, right? Her analysis still focuses on power. That wasn't the point in Genesis. I hope you know that, right? The real point is not about equal power. It's not about power at all. It's about God being king and us being image bearers, fulfilling our function in the world. According to Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, humanity, ever since the fall, has been replicating itself in the tainted image of the first Adam with all of the obnoxious effects of the curse. And this still manifests itself, obviously, in the debate over women in ministry today. Here's what Genesis 5 says. It says, When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness. Make no mistake, that phrase means something as well. According to his image. This doesn't mean Seth had a really strong resemblance for his daddy. Okay? It meant he was made in the image of Adam to do the things Adam did. Okay? And that was sin, quite honestly. But now, the story has changed. And here's where the hope comes into this and sets the foundation for women in ministry. But now through King Jesus, the second Adam, God's image has been restored. Amen? It's been restored. If you claim to be a Christian, the image has been restored. Through Jesus, we see what top-down leadership should actually look like. You want to know what it looks like? Coming under, serving, washing feet, dying, sacrifice. That's what top-down leadership looks like, men. Make sure you hear me. Again, it's coming under, it's serving, it's washing feet, it's dying, it's sacrifice. What does bottom-up submission look like? Or bottom-up leadership look like? Or bottom-up image-bearing look like? Or bottom-up functionality look like? What does it look like? Equality? Humbling oneself to serve. God, who considered equality with God a thing not to be grasped, Jesus, came in the form of a bondservant. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what leadership looks like within the church. Until each side sees 
the diametric, until we, until we understand this, the natural inclination, men to come under instead of push down and women to humbly accept service instead of, and, and that's not opposed to men humbly accepting service, instead of standing on an ontological equality as a right to lead. That's the problem. Again, let me put it in just simple terms. Instead of lording it over both of each other, we're coming under each other. It's all y'all submit to all y'all. It always has been after the new creation. So until we see this, this divide will never be conquered. We just keep talking past each other. We just keep going, women should, men should. Women suck, men suck. No, no. We are functionally image bearers of God, kings and priests in the world, and we're called to do this at every point in our life. So how do we accept and walk in this? Do you remember that word, berah, that I mentioned in Genesis 1.27? Let's look at another example of the word berah and the concept of election to something. Psalm 51, verse 10. Here's David's words. Berah in me a pure heart, O God. What does that mean again? Create in me a clean heart or a pure heart, O God. David isn't asking God to form a new beating organ within his chest. (laughs) I hope you know that. It's not formation. This is a creation of a functionally clean heart. He wants it to be pure before God. Berah is still a creation of function to this day. Jesus came to set our function right, to reorder that function And since we no longer understand these things, we we get it all jacked up. But he has come to do it. He can create in you, he can berah in you a new heart, and he can do that for both genders as well. This is so beautiful. In Romans 8, 29, here's what the Apostle Paul says. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to salvation. Nope, not what it says. He predestined to be conformed, changed, transformed to what? The right image. The image of his son. The image of the right Adam. Not the image of the one Seth bore. Right? He has called us back to this so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. This is a beautiful picture of what we're supposed to be. Now, what does this many brethren idea uh, have to do with? Well, this is being fruitful and multiplying. What's that? It's the function in the garden, isn't, isn't it? It's to restore the correct function. But we as the church, we as the church are called to proliferate the image of God. We're supposed to spread this image, pass this image throughout the world. Right? In Eden, we were commanded to multiply. We did that through actual procreation. Now, in the new kingdom, we can do it through procreation. Hopefully, you're training your child in the way they should go. But this one is a spiritual procreation. This is where the Great Commission comes in. In both the creation mandate and the Great Commission, who is welcome to join? Men and women, all. Every single person. And we're supposed to do it equally. In Eden... Marriage was necessary between men and women for this commission to be fulfilled. In the new kingdom, it isn't necessary. I know that's hard for you to hear. 
Even the Apostle Paul says, I wish you'd be like me. He's not advocating that marriage is a bad thing. He's simply saying there's a mission and you can do it this way. The second Adam has created a new way for his church. He has created a new Eve inside of us. And so we are now um, to be joined with him in that great wedding feast, that great marriage one day. This makes sense of Galatians chapter 3.28, which says, There is neither slave nor free. There is neither Jew nor Greek. But do you know that Paul changes his words in Galatians 3.28? He then says, There is no male and no female. What? What does that even mean? He's not saying gender doesn't matter today. He's not saying, let's jump on board with the culture. But he changes his language. And it's a very beautiful thing. Because what God is doing is resetting this hierarchy and this pain that we have got ourselves in. This is also why marriage is not in the resurrection. I know, hard for us to understand. Matthew 22, 29, and 30. We will neither be married nor given in marriage in the resurrection. In Jesus, our original function has been redeemed and even glorified. Our roles are supposed to reflect this every day of our life. I say it should reflect this, and here's what I mean by that. Um, Although we are redeemed people, we live in real tension, don't we? How many of you have had an argument with your spouse this week? How many of you have had an argument with your spouse for the past 40 years? <laughs> I'm sorry. Anyway, right? The argument is, why did I marry you? Anyway, right? So, right? so there's tension. There's tension because we live in a very real world. There's a now and a not yet of the kingdom. While the resurrection reality does apply to us, we definitely live in a world that's impacted by the curse. The stories we are told constantly pull us back to the curse and to the tension between men and women. The shows we watch, the, the, the messages that we're told, they're all trying to keep this whole thing divided and frustrated. Because why? Because the devil's not freaking stupid, church. He knows full well what he's doing. He's trying to kill and destroy, and he's really good at it. Okay? And so what does he do? He keeps you fighting with each other. It's a really great way to win. Because guess what happens when you, as husbands and wives, continue to fight with each other? What happens is you disciple your children. What? You disciple your children. That's what they turn into. The same people that you are. They fight the same way you fight. It's, It's fascinating. I remember growing up with people and going into their house and their mom and dad would yell all the time. And then we've all grown up and I go into their house and they yell all the time. And they're not Italian or German. So it's like, it's just, it's just the way they are, right? <laughs> right? It's the way they were discipled. This is what happens, okay? Peter and the writer of Hebrews also refer to this as being, uh, this is being true. They tell us that we're aliens or strangers in this world. That's found in 1 Peter 2 and Hebrews chapter 11. Though we now belong to a different kingdom, we still have to navigate the present reality in which we live. And that reality is hard. So... Why does, why does the Bible say um, uh, wives must submit to their husbands? Why, why is this in there? Why do the household codes exist from Ephesians 5 or Colossians chapter 3? Because we're in transition, church. We have walked generationally in this for so long. If you just took the rules off of people, do you know what would happen? 
anarchy, chaos. It's not how you do it. So what does God do? He never leaves you confused. He never leaves you in disorder or disarray. He's always a God who's teaching and shaping you. And so he gives through the Apostle Paul household codes that do what? They train us for how the new kingdom works. All y'all submitting to all y'all. How many of you struggle with submission? You're all liars. Raise your deck on hand, right? Right? You're like, I'm not raising my hand to you, which means you struggle with submission, right? I know what you're doing, Ben Bird. Anyway, so, right? So we struggle with this. He's like, yes, it's true. Anyway, so moving on. How do we faithfully walk in the tension? We open our Bibles. And we stop reading it that men are better, women are less. We stop reading it in these ridiculously perverted ways that all they do is continue to uh, propagate the curse of the fall. That's all they do. All this argument is is a manifestation of the curse repeated over and over and over and over. Keep us in tension. That's what we should do. No. We should walk in life and uh, humility and servitude to each other. That's what we should do. We have to be a people of the Imago Dei, of a function, of God's function inside of our world. So here's here's how I want to wrap this up. As we begin next week to jump into texts like 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, as well as the responsibility for elders and deacons and all of this other stuff, we, are, uh, we have to remember that all of us are corporately a new creation. All of us. Every person in this room is a new creation. As Jesus' bride, we the church, we are image-bearing in our function, and it has been restored. We can do that. Which means what? Man needs help. Woman needs help. We need each other. We're doing a job together. That's the way it's supposed to work. So what we as men and women uh, do with this reality um, will play out one of two ways. We will either see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, or we'll continue to experience the manifestation of the curse and the fall. We'll keep fighting with each other, and we'll look just like the sinking world, won't we? We'll look like everybody else. Let Let me end with this. I think that this is fascinating and it should give you a little bit of my heart and a little bit of what this study has shown me. Um, it's just a picture. We are clear that Adam sinned and fell short, right? He's the first Adam. We're also clear that the second Adam, Christ, came and he did it right. He fully submitted to his king, his father, and he walked in purity before God and made things right for us. Amen? Amen. We also know that he has proposed to us. Isn't that true? He created a bride. Men, suck it up. You're a bride. (laughs) Right? Anyway, he created a bride, the church, and he proposed to us, and he he is going to marry us, and there's going to be a wedding feast that you would not believe when eternity finally rolls in. Okay? This is a beautiful thing. Until eternity gets here, let me ask you a really cool question that plays into women in ministry. Who did God give the commission to? But who are you? You're you're the bride? Oh, 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 God gave the commission to a woman? I didn't realize that. Yes. God gave the commission 
to his bride to go into all the world. Any, anybody who says that women cannot go and preach the gospel into this world have lost their ever-loving mind. Why? Because the person saying it is a woman, and they don't even know it. I'm <laughs> just joking, right? They're part of the bride. We were commissioned to share this message in the world. Isn't that an amazing truth? God has called all of us, church, to go and proclaim the gospel, to make disciples of all nations. Why? Because God actually loves everyone who bears his image. He really does. He loves them enough to die for them, to redeem them, to save them. So next week, we jump into hard passages like, I don't permit a woman to speak. <laughs> that should be fun, right? It should be fun. It's easy. It's nothing big. It's not been debated for thousands of years or anything, right? But it's going to be fun because if we understand this foundation, God wants all of us and we're a new creation, we will understand a very different meaning to these texts, I promise you.